Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the newly elected chair of the four A's, which I am thrilled about for you, Sharon. Thank you so much. Uh, Sharon Napier is a longtime friend. She is the executive chair and founder of one of the great integrated creative shops this country's ever produced, Partners in Napier. We've been friends now about 20 years, I yeah, think. Absolutely. And we are doing this in person, which is extra thrilling. So welcome, Sharon. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I got my sleeves rolled up. I'm ready. It is great. So uh, let's start. And there were so many places to start with you. But I want to start in a place that I know is very near and dear to you and has helped shape you. It's played an inordinate role in just about everything you've done. And I love reading that you're family recently moved back, well, I don't know how recently it was, but moved back from New York back to Rochester. Yes. So can we start by talking about Rochester? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in Lockport, New York, right outside of Buffalo. And I went to college in Rochester. So really, in Rochester, really has shaped my adult life and my family and everything. Um, it's interesting. I started my career in Rochester, but I traveled to New York City four days a week. So I was working on Kodak and for a small shop called the Idea Factory. And it seemed at the time in the 80s, so the entire community went, took a plane and went to New York City and then came back. Um, what I loved about New York and when I founded Partners in Napier, I decided that I was going to create a nationally recognized agency from Rochester, New York. And the advantage to me was the people. What I learned is all these great agencies were hiring these, you know, um, upstate and western, you know, upstate New York and western New York people because of kind of who they were. They were these people of values. They were hardworking. They were smart. And I thought, well, I have an opportunity to galvanize all of that um, Rochester is a really well-educated town. It has rich in the arts. It's a university town, a healthcare town in many ways. And so I really put my roots down there because I felt like that would create differentiation for us. Fantastic. And your degree from, I think it was St. John's? Yes, St. John Fisher. Was, uh, we share a major in sociology and yes. then you also majored in, uh, I think, management. Yes, I know you had a great tenure. You started off with Eric Mower, yes. who I, I remember many, many years ago. But there was about 10 years from your time you graduated until your start of your tenure at Mower. Can we talk about that in-between period? Sure. Um, I always give this advice to young people. It's like get involved in something that you really like. So you know, I started out as a social worker, and I really learned very quickly that that wasn't for me. It was just too emotional. Like I got too involved in the families. So I decided to join a political campaign, something I was really interested in learning more about. And the campaign manager um, ran an advertising agency called the Idea Factory. And he said to me, after I worked with him on all the events, he said, you would be really good in advertising. Do you want to come work for me? And that's really how my career started in advertising. So I had a really good tenure there. And then I was recruited to go to um, Eric Mower to start their Rochester office. And so I helped build the Eric Mower Rochester office. 
And then I was recruited at 36 years old to be the president and CEO of the Wolf Group, which was a regional agency at offices headquartered in Toronto, Buffalo, Atlanta, Boston, New York City. So it had eight agencies, and I ran three of those agencies. Okay, so let's let's go back a little bit further. You, uh, I always think of you as somebody who leads with real humanity. That comes from somewhere. Some of it, it sounds like, comes from that upstate Western New yep. York breeding. But let's go back even further. When you were younger, let's talk about your folks. Did you work yes. as a young lady in high school? I, a lot of my, whatever modest degree of success I've had, I always go back to those jobs I did when I was 12, 13, 14, 15 um, as things that really helped shape me. A lot of those jobs, my mom would cut out a newspaper article and say, Matthew, you should follow up on this. And I would. But talk about early, Sharon. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a very small town, Lockport, New York, 25,000 people. Um, my father was born in Italy, so he came to the States at nine. Um, so I grew up in a first-generation family. I'm the youngest of five, so all the attributes of the five. I'm a right-brained thinker creatively. I'm a non-linear thinker. I'm a risk-taker. And I absolutely hate rules. So I grew up sort of in that environment. But my father really shaped who I am, I believe, because he, at 18, went off to World War II. He came back, became a barber, and uh, he got his, his hands became allergic to the chemicals. So a distributor for professional beauty supplies. Think of all the supplies you see in a barbershop or a um, beauty salon or whatever. He distributed those products. And I grew up in a really entrepreneurial family. Around the table, we talked business. On weekends, we went to my father's store and helped him work. Um, my father was just... and. I also, that's why, like, you know, really creating an inclusive environment is so important to me. You know, he spoke broken English, so I watched him being made fun of. You know, I've watched him, you know, be excluded from different things. So um, we, he, what my father gave me is an amazing work ethic, gave me resilience. And he used to say three things to all of us all the time. He used to say, no one is successful on their own. And, you know, it takes a team. He used to say, your reputation is everything. And he said it by saying, I don't need a contract. My handshake is my word. You know, they didn't, you know, worry about lawyers or anything. But the best thing he used to always say, you know, when you're younger and you, you didn't get the grade you wanted or make the team or do whatever. And he used to say, well, Sharon, whoever said life was fair. So we kind of started with those really sort of um, small town you know, um, lower income values. And our family was really important. We worked together, we played together. And as you would expect, expect an Italian family, my two brothers went into the family business because the girls didn't do that. My um, two sisters became, one's a doctor, one's a lawyer. And um, they didn't know what I did. They had no idea. But what was interesting is um, I think my love for creativity and brand also came from my father because very early on you go to these big hair shows and I'm going to date myself a bit, but you see Videl Sassoon and Farrah Fawcett. And I was the only one of the five that would get in the car, 
drive all the way to New York City and go to these shows. And I just love them. And I think that was my beginning of like really thinking about, you know, brands and the power of brands and people and the excitement of that. And you have this sort of dual life, Rochester, New York City. I think of you as sort of a quintessential New Yorker, but you're not. No. But you love New York and New York sure loves you. Yes. I, you know, I I do have this dual life. In fact, my whole career, I've been living in Rochester and New York City. And I honestly feel blessed because I feel like I've had the best of both worlds. And then when my daughters graduated from college, The first thing for 10 years, they moved to New York. So we have an apartment here. We enjoyed, you know, um, all the things that New York can offer. But I also have upstate New York, which I just love. And I love outdoors. I like to run. I like to hike. So it works for me. And if what I read is right, your daughters ultimately went back up Yes. They always say what's the silver lining with the pandemic is that um, for a bit, we all lived together. And then um, they all recently, both my daughters recently got married their husbands fell in love. They're New Yorkers. They fell in love with Rochester, and they bought homes there. So, Fantastic. And, yeah, and they now work in New York City, so they're back and forth. So same life as their mom. Same life. And let's stay uh, with those early days for a little bit. Yours is a voice that I know gets heard. You're a passionate advocate for the industry, not only for your own shop, but for the role of women, working women, and for the industry as a whole. You were the youngest of five. Was it a struggle to have your voice be heard? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, sure it was, but I always made sure it was heard. You know, I didn't sit in the background. I really had a point of view. We were all athletes. And so, I, and in fact, I was, you know, a product of Title IX in 1974. So mm-hmm. I, I played every varsity sport you could think of. And I think like that. You know, my father said he had five kids because he had the perfect basketball team. I think it really um, allowed me to feel confident in myself, really have a voice. Um, you know, in an Italian family, if you don't speak up, you are, you know, you don't, you don't speak up or protect your plate. Um, you're just uh, pushed aside. So I think really early on, I just learned that. that uh, and I had two sisters that... Um, were amazing to me, really smart, um, brought me everywhere. Uh, and, you know, and even in college, I would visit them before I went to college. So I had a lot of experiences through them. And doctor and lawyer, not too bad. Doctor and lawyer, not too bad. One's a judge, one's a psychologist, not too bad. Not too bad at all. And did you work in those, oh, that period? We worked, I worked since sixth grade. Um, I had a little babysitting job before um, school where I watched two kids before, you know, the mom had to go to school. I got them breakfast, got them off to school, walked them to school. And we would do everything, babysit, mow a lawn, um, you know, help at my father's store, anything we could. Because for us, really, you know, we knew my father was financially struggling and every little bit we could bring, you know, financially to the table. But it was just part of who we were. You know, we really didn't think about, oh, we had to work. But we all played sports. So we would work, play sports, run. We were just really, I think if I look back, kind of disciplined. If you think about, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, if you got to spend, you know, 10,000 hours to be good at something, I think if you worked a lot in your life, you kind of get good at it. Like there's a, you know, if you practice enough at the things you want to do, you get good at them. And I think um, 
what my childhood gave me is a real discipline, that work ethic that, um, and nothing is beneath you. Yeah, and I think, you know, as uh, first generation here, that immigrant work ethic, that carries over. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I believe that too. Okay, so you end up at an agency, and I know of Eric Mower because when I first started here with our old dear friend Birch 20-some-odd years ago, I remember one of the shops that they would talk about in the small, medium-sized category, if you will, was Eric Mower. Yes. What was it about that place that made it special? Um, well, Eric Mower made it special because I think Eric Mower spent the time is particular for me to teach me the business of the business. You know, um, if you're going to be really valuable to a client, you need to understand the financials. You need to listen to their, you know, read their annual reports, listen to their shareholder calls. He was a very disciplined man, and he really um, took his top management and really, we were partners. We had some shares in the business, you know, phantom shares. But we were really brought in very early, and I was just—I was in my, you know, early, late twenties, early thirties. I think learning from one of the best. Great, that's a great story. And then you get recruited by Wolf, as you yes. mentioned earlier. Yes. And pretty young to be a president. President and CEO at thirty-six years old, and so it was about a twenty-five-person agency. Um, by the time I really dug through the financials, that we were like a fifteen-person agency. And I thought, oh, God, what did I do? The account I ran at Eric Mower was bigger than this agency. So what do they say? Life creates choices, but guts creates opportunities. I'm thinking, well, I better turn this into an opportunity. So we just brought it back down to its bare bones, and we built it back up with talent. I hired my partner, and he was from Hutchins Y&R, and uh, my creative partner, and then we just built from there primarily on the backs of two pieces of business. One, Kodak in its, you know, when it was one of the top brands in the world and, um, and Constellation uh, working on all their famous wine brands like Robert Mondavi and Kim Crawford and all these brands. So we built it on two pieces of business and then we started to diversify from there. Fantastic. You also broke through uh, a glass ceiling at a pretty young age and have gained a reputation over the years as a passionate advocate. Really, I think that I see for two things. One is the importance of effectiveness in your work. Not yes. just that you're doing great creative work, but that it's having that impact. The other, transcending our business, is a passionate advocate for women and leading by example. Talk about the climate for you at that time. This was a long time ago. long time ago. And uh, things have certainly evolved and changed, but what did you encounter as a young rising female star at that time? Just to give you some context, in 1996, my kids were three and five. Um, my husband was just starting his own law practice, him and his brother, so we had no paychecks. Um, we're really thinking about... Um, there was, if I have this statistic right, there was 150 senior females in the advertising agents in the, in the industry. So today there's over 3,000. So just to give you some perspective, um, there was times I brought my husband to dinners because you're sitting at a table with all men 
And if they brought their spouse, the men would turn to my husband and the women would turn to me. So it was just um, um, a really different time. I just had this conversation. It was about conforming and just breaking out of the mold a bit. Because back then, if I were to get angry or swear or be too good in a room, it would be perceived all wrong. So, you know, I, I, I smile and I love watching great women leaders today. You know, I found my voice, you know, but a real true voice. But back in the 80s and 90s, you really had to temper your voice. You had to try to fit in. Many times, when I started Project Worldwide, that was in 2011, I was the only female CEO sitting around that table on the board. And on the Wolf Group, the only female CEO sitting around the board. So just really having to, um, like spending three days with all men. And the conversation is incredibly different. And fitting in is incredibly different. But I just, I did something that I just stayed true to who I am. I was outspoken. I said my word. I, um, I, I really... Early on, I said, I'm just going to be really good at what I do. I'm not going to be a really good female leader. I'm just going to be a really good leader because I just couldn't, I couldn't go there. Now, when I think about it, I really like love having a voice for women and the importance of that. When we talk about, you know, inclusion, inclusion at every level, you know, people of color, you know, the LBGTQ community, women, we are all like creating an inclusive environment is not done by long shot. Right. It's a remarkable because we all know the same stats about the influence of women relative to men in purchasing decisions in the yes. home. Um, America, well within our lifetimes, is going to become more than 50% non-white. And looking at both gender, race, color, ethnicity, why wouldn't you want to talk to all your customers? Exactly. Exactly. And so having diverse voices, it's so important. And um, that's one thing that I haven't, I, I lead at the agency, our DE&I and all of our inclusion efforts, because I think it's the huge halo of our culture. And it's harder when you're in Rochester, New York, but we're doing it. You've been engaged as, on the leadership of the four A's for many, many years now. Take yourself outside and look back in. How have we done as an industry? <laughs> yeah. Give us, give us a, a rating and a review. Let's pretend we're on Yelp yep. and we're reviewing the performance of the advertising industry. Looking, let's focus in just on gender to start. How have we done? Uh, on gender, on a scale of one to ten. Sure. On gender, we're we're, we're probably at a seven on gender. Um, I think we've come a long way. On uh, color, we're still so far behind. I'm going to give you an example. Um, just bringing young people into the business. Or I'll give you, give you an example of someone just told me they had to go on a trip to Italy for work. And they had to put all of their expenses on their American Express 
and that they would be paid back. And they weren't sure that they could pay them back. And this is a big holding company. They weren't sure that they could pay them back in the 30 days. So they'd have to hold it. It was $10,000. Who can afford that? When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we have to really think about that. Who can afford to come to New York and do an internship? The affluent, right? So when I, th when I think about it, I want, we have to get to the core of it. I, I think we've created tremendous awareness. I think we're putting money towards it. I think our actions are, 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 spe you know, are speaking for themselves, but I still believe we have a long way to go. Yeah. I have a pretty vivid memory years ago when Omnicom still occupied a lot of 437 Madison in going there and seeing Tiffany Warren when she was on their leadership team. And we went up to the executive floor and it was all old wood paneling. It felt like you were in an old law office. And it really felt walking on that floor that they had said, okay, we need to have a senior woman on our leadership team, put her on the big floor, give her an office, and that's it. And we're done now. We check that box. And that's what it felt like. And Tiffany went on and has done fabulous things with what she's done at AdColor to her credit. Now she has a big gig, I think, at Sony. But it seems to me that on race in particular, um, there's been an awful lot of lip service yeah. and not much more than that. I could not agree more. We, we as an industry have to do so much better. And uh, we, can't, we can't have it bubble up and, you know, in 2021, put some money towards it, put a few priorities and walk away. Yeah. We really have to measure it. So yeah. that's something in the four A's I'm really passionate about. As chair, I really want to make sure we're moving the needle there. Yeah, we did. Uh, we just had Advertising Week Europe in London last week. And each morning we uh, did uh, speed mentoring. And one of the sessions we did with a wonderful organization called MOBO, which is called, uh, stands for Music of Black Origin. It was founded by a really accomplished uh, female leader named Kanye King, who's, a, I think, OBE or CBE, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big honors, commander of the British Empire, I believe she is. And... I walked into our venue and on Shaftesbury right off Piccadilly Circus that morning and there were probably 30 tables uh, and it was equal black and white. And you look at that and I'm giving the credit here goes to Kanye and Mobo. We just gave her the platform of Advertising Week Europe to do it. But I think if you really commit to it, you can do it. Absolutely. And, and I would imagine as chair of the four A's, that's going to be something that you're going to prioritize. Yes, 100%. We've created some movement, some good forward movement, but we, we have a long yeah, way. Yeah, and I like Marla a lot. I think she's doing oh, a terrific job. First of all, um, you know, I think about what we've gone through as an industry in the last two years. I think the, you know, 4As has done an amazing job supporting and helping agencies through that. Just like many industries, the 4As will be better because of it, because we had to think differently. You know, we think we corner the market as agencies on creativity, but look what businesses have done through the, you know, restaurants and universities. They had to pivot and change, and they will be better. So I think a lot of what we've gone through, I mean, what have we learned from the pandemic? You know, we have to really take care of our whole selves. Um, maybe we don't have to work 80 hours a week, right? Um, 
mental health is really important, right? De having diverse voices to create our work is really important through all the social unrest that we had. So, you know, I look at the four A's, you know, just in the last two years, they're a different organization and they will be better for it. All of us will be. And I think about all of what we've endured. You know, I always say, and it sounds a little Pollyanna, but I believe in creativity has the power to change the world. And look how powerful we have been through this pandemic and look how much we've done if we come together as an industry. I really believe we'll be unstoppable, but we have to commit. And DE&I is a huge commitment. Yeah, no, I, I think you're the right leader at the right time for that organization. I'm really excited Thank uh, you. about that. I did not know. So when you told me that earlier today. Yes, like, yes. Great, 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 great. News. And it really comes, you know, from the heart. I mean, I, you know, I was raised in a first generation family. I watched what, you know, how my father was really, he was not in the club. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And I, I was very lucky to grow up in Queens. Brooklyn gets all the good PR, but Queens is pretty great too. <laughs> and um, I went to, very proudly went to all New York City public schools. And, you know, my mom would always, we used to go home for lunch. You would walk home. Oh, absolutely. For lunch. Right. And uh, I would always bring a friend home for lunch who didn't have money for lunch. You know, my friend Eddie Kelly, whose father was a diplomat from Ghana, my friend Fritz Isaac from Haiti. And um, that's just how I was raised. And I think that stays with you and that immigrant work ethic, very yes. similar. Yes. Bre I, breeding, if you will. I have a, a, a story that's just so near and dear to my heart. When, like, you'd come home from college and, you know, my father would say, would you go to the grocery store? You know, we're going to make dinner for Christmas Eve. And, you know, we had the seven fishes that you do in Italian families. But by the time we got out of that store, he would have invited five or six people that didn't have a place to go. My mother would get so mad because, you know, she had the perfect table setting. But my father didn't care. It's like whoever needed to have a place to go on Christmas Eve, yep. that was our house. Yeah, and that stays with you your whole life. Yeah. So let's uh, go back uh, again, if, uh, if you will. You're a founder. I don't know the Partners in Napier origin story, and I'd love to hear it. Oh, I will tell it to you uh, gladly. Um, I was at the Wolf Group, and it's, you know, Wolf Group, you know, headquartered in Toronto. I was running three offices, and it was very clear we were having financial difficulties. So we, uh, there was four people in the senior management team, we created a project called Flow, wolf, wolf spelled backwards, so, and to lead a management buyout. We had 40 people at the time, and we're like, we can all get jobs, but we have 40 people, we have 40 families, we have 40 careers that we felt responsible for. So we led a management buyout, we um, raised the money, and um, made the offer, it went through, so we bought the agency on a Friday. Um, when we were about to do this, we started to ask our clients, if you, would, if you would give us one word that describes who we are, what was the one word you would use? And almost all of them said, you are amazing partners. You know when to lead, you know when to partner, you know when to follow, you roll up your sleeves and you become part of the team.
So hence came the name Partners in Napier, not because we had other partners like a law firm, but because it was the DNA of who we are, partner with our each other, partner with our community, and partner with our clients. So we literally created, you know, the logo, and on Monday morning, we called the entire agency, 40 people, into a conference room, because we could all fit in one, and we told them what we did. We said on Wednesday of that week, we literally have to go to the bank to sign our lives away. And when I say sign our lives away, we cashed in our 401ks, we cashed in any insurance, we used our houses as collateral to raise the money to do this. So two weeks later, we come back, we sign our lives away, and the 40 people, so we love telling it, the brave 40 story they created this beautiful metal sign that went above our door, uh, and they bought it with their own money. And they said, "This is um, every time we go into the door, um, we're going to tap the sign, and you know, really to cheer our independence and our new, a new sign, a new name, and a new agency." So, it was really an incredible time. Um, that happened in two thousand and four. So. And so we really, so we, we built the agency, we were 40 people, we were doing really great work. We now became all of our clients like, you know, yeah, we didn't even know who the Wolf Group was. It's about Sharon and team. And we paid for it. We paid it off in two years. And then we had a 10-year plan, though, because we said we are not going to be a local or regional agency. We are going to be a national agency, and we're going to build it from Rochester. And we used to have this joke because, you know, the area code with, with New York was 212. You know, we were 716, so we were like, you know, we had 716 all over, you know, like, or, I'm sorry, 585 all over just to, you know, remind us of where we were going to build this from. And then, but our goal was we were either going to start acquiring or we were going to be acquired. So we started acquiring. We acquired a, you know, a small agency. We acquired a, a content studio. And then, um, the, I, you know, we started looking seventh, so we had a 10-year plan. In the seventh year, we started looking at should we be acquired. First of all, you know, we couldn't bankroll something really big. Um, we wanted to recruit the best talent we could recruit. And if we had a bigger story and bigger opportunity, we could, we were talking about recruiting people from anywhere, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, um, a backing someone to really back us. But what was important is that we were independent. We did not want to be, you know, one of the big four. So, and we got some offers because we had big clients that, you know, some of the big holding companies wanted. We had Bausch and Lam and we had Kodak and we had Constellation and all doing pretty nice, you know, advertising at the time. Then Project Worldwide came along, introduced to me by somebody on the 4A's board, saying, you might want to check them out. And what I liked and what we liked about Project Worldwide, number one, they're from Detroit. So we felt like if they had the same DNA, that moxie, you know, like, you know, um, good work ethic, right? Um, they were family-owned, and I grew up in a family-owned business, so I got it. Two brothers. I have two brothers. You know, same. I could get it. Um, and that they were an ESOP. So we loved that we were employee-owned, not Wall Street-owned. And so I literally told the entire agency six weeks before it was signed. I wanted them all on board. Like, this is what we're going to do. This is what um, I think is right for the agency. 
So about 60 people knew and not a leak to the press. Um, and so we joined Project Worldwide in 2011. And also their, their philosophy is it's founder, the founder soul must remain in the agency. You know, it wasn't like take your two, three, four year buyout and out. It was really the place where it would help amplify your brand, be the accelerator for your brand. So 13 years later, I'm still, you know, running the agency and, um, and it's really helped amplify us. But then in 2019, I did appoint a CEO, uh, Courtney Katroop, we can talk about that, and became executive chair and founder because I'm actually a big believer in you have to create your own change. You can't let change drive you. And I did not want to wake up as one of those founders at 75, you know, running the agency. You know, you got to always be thinking about what's next, what's next. And uh, Courtney helped build the agency with me for the past 17 years. So I wanted to reward that loyalty and that talent. And uh, we brought in a chief creative officer from Out of Market, from Mullen Lowe, Rob Kotkam. We brought in a new CFO from um, an architectural industry who worked at Bausch & Lomb. Could, so it was all how to scale. So today right. we're almost 200 people. Um, we're part of Project Worldwide, and um, we can, we're still growing our capabilities based on what our clients need, you know, content studio, we have media now, we have big strategy group, we have a design group. So just that's the story along the way. And I think, the, you know, when we started, we just, it was really simple. Let's do great work with great people for great clients. Let us say no more often than we say yes. And just like kind of build it, you know, like lead by example, all those things you learn in kindergarten, I don't know. But, you know, just those really simple values. And I think it's really served us well. And that old school notion of keeping your promises. Keeping your promises. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back. We'll talk more about Courtney and, yep. and 2022 and beyond. But going back to those early days, 2004, organic growth is tough. You know, we're a small business and we've grown quite a bit. When we met right around that same time yes. when Advertising Week, we had our first opening gala hosted by Mayor Bloomberg. And uh, Ken Case had to speak that night, our first chair. And Ken, as you recall, was a wonderfully charismatic guy, but yes. not a great public speaker. And we, I think we gave him like two drinks. So he was like a little less nervous, but right before he got slurry. And, <laughs> and he pulled it off. Yeah. He did fine that night with Mayor Bloomberg. Um, and that was almost 20 years ago uh, as well. Growing organically is tough. You put all your own money in, you mortgage your homes, you're cashed in your 401ks. Talk about the challenge for a small business of organic growth because you've, you've done that journey. Yeah, um, I've done both. I've done uh, organic and, you know, um, and, and acquired. So through, um, but it is tough. You, and even so organically we grew. Um, it's the integration First of all, it's like, first of all, double down on the client you have and really grow there. Um, what we thought about um, 10 years ago is really, maybe eight years is, what verticals are we gonna become known for? We're not gonna be all things to all people. So we, we really doubled down on four verticals. We really started to tell our story. You know, someone said to me, if you don't go out and tell your story, who's gonna tell it? 
So really, you know, people, you know, speaking and public, you know, um, engagements and, and giving back to the community, uh, to our, our advertising community. And then it's like building these capabilities um, that you know that you're going to need to win business and that your clients are going to need to win in the marketplace. So, you know, we build, um, you know, almost, you know, back then shopper marketing, really important. We built, um, you know, a, a strong strategy team, a data and analytics team, a media team. And, you know, those are one by one. And what I've learned is you have to hire a real leader and a real expert and then they can galvanize and start to grow. So you can't just do it. You can't take someone that you have in your team and say, now go over and do this. So we hired, you know, like Jordan Murphy, who runs our, um, our um, media group. He came, you know, 12 years in New York, building media teams, comes and really building that team. So it's, but what happens, you know, along the way you make some mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, that's tough when you don't have deep, deep, deep pockets to do that. And, um, you know, we had a couple fumbles on some things. Um, but, you know, I think it's really being intentional and really um, building things based on looking forward and seeing what your clients are going to need and how you're going to keep evolving and modernizing your agency. And you're also doing another full-time job. You're a mom. Yes. And you have a husband. Yes. Talk about those challenges because for a woman, it's very different than for a man. It's really different. And in the early days, you talk about, you know, a female being in a man's world. Um, it was, I had to pretend many times I just didn't even have two young kids. And, but I did things back then that I'm really proud of. Um, when my kids would get home from school at three o'clock, they would call me. I could be in the middle of a new business pitch, and I would take their call. Um, I got some really good advice um, from a really good friend early on that says, whatever you're doing, be 100% in it. So if I was with my kids, I was with my kids. Um, my kids, you know, learned a lot. They were exposed to a lot. They traveled with me. They saw me speak. You know, they. I was back then, the only mom who had a C-level job. So I wasn't in the book club, or I didn't pick up my kids after school. But what I did do, I was their basketball coach for five years, the only female basketball coach for five years. And I really got to know them through a mutual interest. And I have to tell you, Coach fourth, 15 fourth graders in basketball, and you will learn so much about your own leadership style. So I found ways, but I look back now and I think I have absolutely no idea how I did it. But what I love right now is my two daughters and now their husbands, they're our best friends, you know. So we did something. That's, we did something that right. says you did something right. <laughs> absolutely. Let's talk, Sharon, a little bit about what the business was when you launched the agency and how it's been reshaped. And you're now going to lead the organization nationally at a time when the uh, technologically driven acceleration of change, you know, we're way past, I don't know what's after transformation, but whatever that is, that's where we are. Yes. 
and uh, the agency world and the creative world were very, very different in 2004. Yes. Yes. What has surprised you the most? And is the industry, this is an impossible question, but I'm going to ask you, is the industry prepared to change as much as it has to, to adapt as Google and Facebook and some of the other big players really eat a lot of folks' lunch? Yeah. I don't know if I have the full answer for this, but there's a constant from 2004 to today, and it's about the idea, right? It's about the creative idea. We have a lot more tools and a lot more ways to get there and a lot, lot more ways to measure it. You know, you talked about, um, you know, we're an agency that really focuses on impact. Um, I'm really proud that we were just told we won three Effies and we'll be going in June to find out if it's, you know, silver, gold, or, um, or bronze. But that's impact, right? Like business impact. Um, so you start with a real creative idea. You have consumer insights. Now you have business insights. Now you have data and analytics. You have multiple audiences. We used to have like, you know, we are an audience-led agency. That's what we think about it. But um, like we're just entering the cannabis world. In fact, we just signed a big contract. We're going to be going into the cannabis world. And I look at that and I think for every brand, there is seven audiences, right? And so... You know, how are we going to evolve? First of all, we have to attract really young, good talent and make them as passionate about the business as we were. And I have to tell you, there is no better industry than this industry. You know, so we got to get young, bright from all walks, right? The music industry, the technology industry, the creative industry. That's something that we have to do. We have to understand it's always about um, the idea and it's human, right? There has to be an emotion to whatever we do. And then we have to remember that then we have to be, it has to be backed by what are we measuring and what impact are we making? And I just think if we, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak to the Googles of the world and they're eating our lunch, but if we, if we adopt and understand how to interplay with the Googles and the Facebooks and everyone in the world, We'll figure it out because I think we're the most adaptable, you know, industry in the world, you know. Yeah, I, I think it, you're dead on. It starts with the strength of the idea. Yeah. And can we advance a cause, an agenda, you know, whatever the objective might be off the brief. But you were, to your credit, early to the game when you talked about building those early verticals. You were you know, looking at data and analytics and things before anybody really knew what they were. Absolutely. Because we had to. We, you know, it's almost like um, the inferiority complex. We had to be better. So talking about, you know, a female in a room of mostly men, we had to be better. We had to be better. And we knew it when we walked in the room. And honestly, it was our advantage. That's great. So you were early to the game on a lot of things. I remember an article that you wrote that really stood out where you talked about why in a very public forum you decided to sell the company. And that was yes. more than 10 years ago. Go back to that and reflecting now, was it right? Yeah, that's a great... I, I remember the article. I don't remember exactly what I said, but 
here's, um, I think today, um, I have no regrets, and I think it was absolutely the right thing to do, and here's why. Um, we, um, there's 14 Project Worldwide agencies, and I know every one of the leaders, and I can pick up the phone and learn and call from them. Before the pandemic, we got together four times a year in person in either New York or LA. So it was like our own group of, you know, your sisters, your brothers, right? Secondly, we've been able to recruit really good talent because we have a bigger story than most midsize. We're independent still, and we're agency run. We're not holding company run. You know, what's best for our clients is how decisions get made. And I did it because I really wanted a brand amplifier. And if I look back, Project Worldwide has really helped be a, an amplifier for partners in Napier. So, I, you know, I, and I, I get asked all the time, what do you need to do if you want to sell? Right? What are the things you have to think about? First of all, you have to be ready for it. Because when I sold, I hadn't had a boss in eight years. You know, so that, that's different, right? Secondly, um, you have to have a really strong management team to sell because it's not about sharing Napier. It's about what you built, the infrastructure you built. You have to grow. You have to have three years of growth. You have to have three years of good profit. And um, you have to really understand why you're doing it. Are you selling to get out? Or are you selling to build something really special and this is going to help you do it? Like, why personally do you want to do this? Well, and I think you talked about, you know, putting Courtney in as, as CEO, but that's part of what I think is ingrained in you. You want your shop to outlive you. Yes. Yes. Simple thing I live by. Make room for more. Just make room for more. And if you do that, you'll always be better. You know, you'll learn. You'll be better. It's got it. Yeah. Like it's, it's a brand. Yeah. And you've also maintained that entrepreneurial spirit. Yes. Yes. Like I look at Ogle, David Ogilvy. I love one of his books, you know, he built a brand and he, you know, simple thing is like, um, lead from a round table, right? You know, ultimately you can make the decisions, but you have to have a really strong round table, right? And to, for your brand to live on. So you, uh, have uniquely sat in the catbird seat leading an independent shop. Right. And you've grown, you've got, you know, continue to have a, a great, great roster of clients. You've also seen the rise, fall, rise, dissolution, evolution of all the big boys and girls, all the big holding companies. Yes. Um, S4 and David Jones, Brand Tech Group have risen in the last few years. I think we continue to see a rise of a lot of the independent shops uh, who have continued to do really, really well, the holding companies, all still formidable. What's your take on the evolution of the agency business, creative and media being busted apart, now sort of coming back together in many respects? Um, outside looking in, what's your take on the evolution of the agency business? Hmm. Great question. Um, first of all, I think Creative and media must come back together because if we are thinking through the eyes of the audience, it's the only way we can create messaging, you know, at the right time and the right place and the right message, right? It must come back together. Technology will play a huge role, and I see more 
Um, I'll call them integrated agencies and tech companies coming together. I think that is the future. Um, I think that um, it's going to be interesting where data and analytics lives. Does it live more with a client and we are supporting it as agencies? Who's driving that data science? So just that, that to me is unknown at this point. Um, I see... Um, we saw it during the pandemic. There is a stronger partnership between client and agency during the pandemic. And if one thing could remain and be a silver lining, I hope it's that. Because like, I really do believe when we work together, we can create really, really good work. So that partnership, you know, business, you know, they say that like the tenure of a CMO is 24 months or 18 months. I hope that changes. And, you know, and they're and it's a, a lot younger, you know, so it will change just by the fact of who's leading it. But I think our industry is always have changed, always has adapted. And I think it will change and adapt into the future. It will look different. What is, um, I heard, you know, the, um, the future doesn't live in the confines of the past. And I love that phrase. We're going to have to really think about what that new context structure looks like. And we got to start to wrap. I don't want to keep you too long, but let's talk a little bit more about the agency and talk about Courtney yeah. and the state of the agency today. And if we're having this conversation again a year or so from now, what do you think will be different? Hmm, that's great. Um, uh, first of all, um, getting to a really, really good leadership team is hard, and it's not a linear path. And um, it wasn't like Courtney sat at my hip for 16 years and risen to the top. You know, she had kids, she had different positions, there was people above her, but um, it was her perseverance, it was her intelligence it was her smarts that got her to the table and the shared experiences so um i see her you know remaining on as is uh ceo with her partner rob Cotcamp, which has just been um you know an incredible creative addition what's different is um i think we'll probably be this is what we're gonna have to scale with soul i see us having to be probably a hundred people bigger in order to have the capabilities that we need. So how do we organize the agency so that we can still um, service like a mid to small agency while having the capabilities that we need to really drive our clients. Yeah, and business. that's what you'll do. You'll keep that culture. Yes. Yes. Come hella high water. Okay. And let's just wrap now. You're now the incoming or the new chair. Yes. Of the four A's that puts you in an incredibly important leadership position. You've always been a leader and have served as vice chair uh, admirably, but now you're the chair. What are the one, two, or three things that are top on your priority list? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really, you know, it's, it's literally, you know, 24 hours in the making, but what's top on my list is we talked about inclusion at every level. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, this uh, talent, you know, um, recruiting, retaining, and training, really important, especially in a hybrid 
workplace. And then um, for me, it's um, passionate about creating, making young talent really passionate about being in this industry because that's how we will evolve, adapt, and remain relevant. Fantastic. Well, your passion is um, inspirational. And we caught up recently. We hadn't seen each other in a while. We had a a great lunch. uh, And I've enjoyed this uh, immensely. We will support you any and every way we can. And I would challenge us together um, to accomplish more. Absolutely. We had a, a very big night at the Apollo Theater in October of 21. We brought Mary J. Blige up there, YouTube was our partner, was a benefit for the Mandela Foundation. And I couldn't think of anything that makes a more compelling statement about our commitment to the black community in particular than going up to Harlem. I was there, it was amazing. And I was thrilled that you were there and you dove in big that whole week, you and your team. Yep. And I would love to do something on that scale with the four A's and not only focus on the black community, but we have great initiatives uh, going with the Hispanic community, the AAPI community, which gets left out of the conversation completely, uh, as well as the LGBTQ community. And I think an opportunity to ensure we're talking, going back to something we touched on earlier, talking to all your potential customers is something I know how much you believe in. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Congratulations on ascending to the chair. Well-deserved. And I think it's just great that you have played so successfully with all the big boys and girls for years, and you're now leading them. And that's completely to your credit. Your dad, I'm sure, is smiling. Ah, thanks, Matt. This has been a fantastic hour. Thanks so much. Thank you. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.